It's a crazy world out there, and this is the place to help you figure out how to live in it. Welcome to the Masculinist Podcast, the show about how we live as Christian men and as the church in today's radically new and challenging world. I'm your host, Aaron Wren. Thank you for listening. Please visit our website and sign up for our newsletter today at themasculinist.org. You can also support the work of The Masculinist on Patreon at patreon.com slash masculinist, on Gumroad at gumroad.com slash masculinist, or on PayPal at paypal.me slash masculinist. And now for today's show. Hello, this is Aaron, and welcome back to the podcast. I hope that you are all having a good Advent season. And just a reminder, for those of you who haven't yet left a rating on Apple Podcast or wherever you consume this, I would really appreciate it if you would do so. That helps with discoverability, convinces people to check it out. We're up to 80 ratings on Apple Podcasts. I would love to get that over a uh, hundred, and we're at average of five stars, so that's great. Really appreciate it. So please do leave a rating. Today, I want to talk about probably the most consequential conservative victory in the American church in a hundred years, and it's one that you have probably never heard of before. You know, I'm Presbyterian. In the Presbyterian world, you always see all these people talking about Gresham Machen. And, you know, Gresham Machen was this uh, professor at Princeton Seminary in the early 20th century who was the uh, essentially the conservative uh, fighter for the traditional Christian positions in the face of kind of modernist uh, incursions there. And everybody loves him. And, and yet, I think the most important thing to understand about Gresham Machen is the guy was a loser. I mean, he was totally routed and defeated. He was run out of his seminary, and he was excommunicated from the Presbyterian Church. And so I think a lot of people can admire his theology. You can admire his analysis of theological liberalism. There's a lot of things to admire about Gresham Machen, but I think it's really important to understand that the guy flat out lost. And so if you're modeling yourself after him, you're basically modeling, modeling yourself after defeat. And I think this really gets to the heart of why conservatives so often lose. Very focused on theological purity, people who have the right ideas, um, much, much, much less focused on being able to win institutional and cultural battles. And so I that's why I'm giving these couple little podcasts that I've been doing last week on the Methodist Church and this one on this other incident that I think are very important to study. And, you know, I can see how many people are, are listening to the podcast and, you know, I know how many people are emailing me about different podcasts and like, the, you know, the one I did on the Methodist Church was, it did okay, but it was not my, my best performing one. And it, it was, a, there was a little bit of minutia around, you know, contracts and things like that. And those things kind of like make your eyes glaze over sometimes. They're not super exciting. But that is really the most important stuff that you need to be studying to some extent, because this is what determines who wins and who loses in institutional battles. And as I have said, conservatives have tended to dramatically underestimate the value of institutions and institutional control. And I want to illustrate that today by telling you a story about a time that the conservatives actually won. 
And this is the story of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Concordia Seminary in St. Louis um, split in the creation of something called Seminex, the Concordia Seminary in Exile. And what I'm telling you is not based on any sort of deep research. It's basically a pricey of the Wikipedia page. And so I would highly encourage you to go to Wikipedia and look up Seminex, S-E-M-I-N-E-X, and just read about this. There's a very interesting little backgrounder on it. So basically, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod is one of the different Lutheran Church denominations in the country. And... Uh, Today, it's really known as one of the conservative denominations, but that was not always the case. And in the mid-century era, in in the 50s uh, up through the early 70s, they went through a version of what happened in Presbyterianism, you know, a generation or two earlier, as theological modernism began to um, get embedded into the seminaries and started to make inroads in taking over the denomination. Theological liberalism, in this case, refers to things like denying the inerrancy of Scripture, denying the reality of miracles, the virgin birth, things like that, uh, treating the Bible as a, you know, historical document and saying that people like Abraham was, you know, mythological and things like that. So essentially taking a secular scholarly approach to the Scriptures. This really came out of uh, Germany in the 19th century. And so this Concordia Seminary had been a, um, you know, kind of a, a an emerging hotbed of this in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. And the kind of average, you know, layman in the pews was not down with this. And there was a lot of negativity towards it. And uh, in fact, the church passed uh, between 1959 and 1973, no fewer than 17 resolutions affirming biblical inerrancy and condemning, you know, these modernist heresies. 17 resolutions. And so you, you often see, by the way, people talking about, oh, we need to have these these resolutions passed. Well, they, they passed all these resolutions, but nothing happened because the leadership of the seminary, the president of the denomination, the presidents of many of the regional kind of uh, divisions of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod were all sympathetic to this modernist position, as was the, uh, you know, most of the faculty of the seminary. So in essence, uh, this was a very common situation in that the laity was pretty orthodox. Many of the intellectual and institutional elites were very, very, um, very, very on the, with the modernist faction. And so what happened was there was sort of a movement in, in kind of the, the conservatives to say, we got to do something about this. And they, they were going to do something about it when the, the president of the seminary was going to retire. And the, the, the modernists got together and said, look, um, you know, we got to hurry up and approve uh, a new president uh, before these guys can, can try to start running candidates against us for like denominational presidents and stuff like that. We've got all the institutions and key positions under our control. So we need to accelerate and name the successor of the president of the of the seminary, even before the um, you know the previous president's actually gone, 
And uh, it's interesting, if you read the Wikipedia page, uh, here's what it says. The modernist faction was concerned that confessional insurgents would disrupt the process of selection for a presidency of Concordia Seminary, hindering the greater goal of Lutheran unity. And so we see right there, there, there's the rhetoric that's often all the time. Anybody who's a conservative who's complaining about stuff is always accused of being divisive. So what they were basically realizing is, hey, our team might lose, so we better hurry up and stick our guy in there. Um, right. And so, um, you know, this is, this was the really, and they went through an exceptional circumstance and they, they sort of did that. And they hired this guy. His name was, um, I'm not sure quite how to pronounce it. John Titian is how I'm going to pronounce it. It's T-I-E-T-J-E-N. And, uh, it says of him, uh, in Wikipedia, although a virtual unknown among the broader synod, Titian was well known in ecumenical movement. So in essence, right, they already had their guy that they knew was loyal to their cause that they were going to um, put in. And so they did that. And then what happened is the next time uh, that the elections were held for president of the denomination, uh, they nominated a guy named Jacob Preus, who was the president of another more conservative seminary to come in. And here's what he did. Preus said, I'm going to establish a fact-finding committee, and we're going to uh, examine the teachings of the professors of Concordia Seminary and find out what they're teaching. And so he went in and they did all these interviews and all this investigations, and they produced this thing called a blue book that basically said, here's what these guys are teaching. And they sent it around to basically every congregation and pastor in the entire denomination and said, this is what our main seminary uh, is doing. And so he couldn't get rid of uh, the people doing it because the seminary's board was still controlled by the uh, by the liberal faction, um, but uh, you know he's starting he's starting to get get going, and so at the same time, right? They're like we have to replace the board at the next election, so they're moving to to break the board. The liberals come along, they start creating like a network of people saying we really have to be prepared to go to war. We have to be able to support the people. These modernists. We need to be able to give them money, institutional support if they get into trouble. So they start doing that. And what happens is ultimately the conservatives won control of the board and they sacked the president of Concordia Seminary, who was this modernist guy. And this is where it gets really interesting because 45 out of the 50 faculty members and the vast majority of the students walked out. They said... We're out. We, we're protesting the sacking of this president. And of course, all these 45 seminaries, think about this. This is 90% of your faculty uh, were theological modernists, and they, they walk out. So your seminary now has 90% of its faculty gone, most of its students, and you've got a media circus that's very favorable to the, um, to the modernist position, just as you can imagine what happened today if something like that happened. And what happened Basically, uh, the conservative faction held firm and essentially sacked uh, all 45 of those guys, said, don't come back. And uh, the seminary was essentially, you know, was completely decimated at that time. The 45 people and their allies went off and founded something called the Concordia uh, Seminary in Exile, which became known as Seminex. And most of the students enrolled in that. And so... 
um, it was really a question of, of what would happen after that is can you even rebuild Concordia Seminary? In fact, Concordia Seminary rebounded very quickly, uh, was quickly back in business. Seminex kind of foundered along for a few years and ended up going out of business uh, in, in the 1980s. Um, you know, most of its faculty were sort of dispersed to other more liberal Lutheran seminaries. Uh, but in essence, it's interesting. The conservatives lost 90% of the faculty, the majority of the students, had the media against them, and yet, because they controlled that institution, they were able to rebuild it uh, and rebuild it on conservative terms. The liberals, when they left, when they got sacked, they left with a lot of resources, but their institution failed. And I think this is really important because liberals are very good at capturing institutions. They're very poor at creating institutions. Now, that's a little untrue in that liberals are very good at creating certain kinds of institutions. They're excellent at uh, creating political infrastructure, for example, community organizing groups, um, unions, things like that. Things that are politically oriented, they're extremely good at. But actually, functional institutions, they're just not necessarily as good at that. So basically, one guy, Gresham Machen, could be given the boot, and he creates a, you know, he's given the boot out of Princeton Seminary. He creates Westminster Seminary, which is still in business, right? So he created an institution that lasted. He created a, he was kicked out of the Presbyterian Church, main Presbyterian Church, so he created his own denomination for conservative churches called the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And you know what? It's a small denomination, but it's actually still in business today. So when conservatives are given the boot, they're actually able to create these alternative institutions, which in some extent is a weakness because it makes conservatives very quick to hit the exit button because like, oh, we'll go start a new institution. But here's the key. Liberals, if they lose out in an institutional war and they have to go try to create a new institution, they may very well struggle to do that. It's typically the case that the people themselves who would have been harmed by being fired from their job, uh, they'll be taken care of. I mean, liberals always take care of their wounded. Um, and they're, you know, you, what you will see in political circles or in, or in uh, kind of church circles, anytime some liberal person uh, gets, you know, fired or gets in trouble because of some sort of a conservative boycott or conservative action, I mean, the liberals will go to immense lengths to try to ensure that that person never really takes an ultimate hit. So we see this, for example, with James Gunn, who was going to be hired to be the director of this sequel to Guardians of the Galaxy. He was, I think, the director of the original one by Disney. Turned out he'd been tweeting all these jokes about child porn on Twitter. And um, he, uh, so a bunch of people found him and Disney fired him. But then guess what? They rehired him because there was mass pressure put on Disney to rehire this guy. Oh, the tweets were just jokes. He doesn't mean it. You know, free speech, etc. Of course, you know, if it's a conservative, you know, you're fired and, and you're, you're toast and your buddies will actually, your own buddies, the own people that you think are your team will, will cast you out into the outer darkness. Um, and, and so another example, Colin Kaepernick, I mean, years later after he was, you know, he's not in the NFL, you know, it's constantly being made the face of ad campaigns, constantly being talked about. Like, it's like, we're going to make sure that like nothing bad happens to Colin Kaepernick and we're never going to shut up about it. You know, conservatives can learn something about that. So the people were taken care of, but the institutions often fail. The institutions are 
very unsuccessful. And so um, what we saw here, the conservatives won. They controlled the institution. They completely rebuilt it from nothing in very short order. The liberals left with, you know, what would seem to be the most, the biggest asset, which is the people and the students. And yet, despite that, their effort failed. And then this really had tremendous consequences uh, for um, the uh, LCMS because a lot of the liberal churches, far less than they thought was going to happen, but 200 of the most liberal LCMS churches actually left the denomination in order to create a new, uh, much more liberal denomination, which of course immediately did things like ordain women and joined all of the liberal ecumenical groups like the, the you know, uh, the National Council of Churches and all that stuff, which goes to show you these people were actually much, much more liberal than they were letting on. The minute that they actually had something they controlled, they turned the, the dial all the way to the left. And um, they they later were part of the people that merged into what is the Evangelical Lutheran, Lutheran Church in America, which is the, na- the main kind of very liberal um, uh, church, uh, in, L- Lutheran denomination in the country. And it's interesting that um uh you know that a lot of people and this is what wikipedia says said attributed the actual liberal professors and liberal people and liberal churches from the lcms as really the source of liberalism in the evangelical lutheran church in america here a quote from wikipedia decades later theologian carl broughton would write that the transfer of so many modernist professors to future seminaries of the elca permanently altered the DNA of these institutions, resulting in what he perceived as the root cause of the slow progressive slide of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. So uh, interesting to see what happened there, but this really solidified the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod as a conservative denomination in the country. They were able to recapture their seminary, and they were then able to uh, you know, essentially induce, you know, a certain number of these churches to go packing. And um, and so the conservatives really won there. And right after the whole Seminex breakaway, um, Francis Schaeffer addressed a convocation at Concordia Seminary and he talked to the people who hadn't walked out, like the students who hadn't left, the minority who hadn't left, and, you know, the handful of faculty who were left. And here's what he said from Wikipedia. Schaefer commended the Synod for its faithful stance and noted that this was the first time in history that a church body resisted the influx of modernism and retained its confessional heritage. So think about that. It was the first time ever that this modernist theology got into a seminary, got into a denomination, and was ultimately expelled by the conservatives. And you know what? And, you know, the Lutherans are always a little bit, you know, kind of their own little world. They're not as connected to other denominations for a lot of other reasons. But this idea that, like, this happened and almost nobody knows about this. Nobody talks about this. I only discovered it myself, like, two, three years ago. Uh, It was pretty amazing. And to show you how consequential this was, this was one of the inspirations for the people who launched the SBC conservative resurgence in in the 1980s, in the late 1970s. So that Southern Baptist conservative resurgence uh, was really a product of this, inspired by this. And it basically showed them, hey, liberal theological drift can be stopped, and not only can be stopped, can be reversed. 
people don't understand that today, most people don't know the Southern Baptist Convention was actually becoming a very liberal denomination uh, in that era, and that was also reversed. Again, that, that one's much, much more famous, um, but was sort of inspired by this one. And so I think there are a number of lessons that I would take away from this story. And again, I go to Wikipedia and read it. There's probably been good books written about it. Uh, again, I'm, I'm not suggesting this is anything other than a Wikipedia book report kind of thing, okay? Uh, but but you see these things, and they're not talked about anywhere, and they're so consequential, and you're like, what's going on? Uh, but here's some lessons. One, again, institutional control is just very important. You cannot underrate the importance of institutional control. Control of the Concordia Seminary Institution, the brand, the history, the heritage, the building, counted for a lot. With it, the conservatives could rebuild from zero. Without it, the liberals were totally out in the cold and were totally unable to rebuild an institution that could last. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two is that institutional and elite leadership in these denominations are generally far more liberal than the rank and file. I think it's pretty well known that, you know, many, many professors at Christian colleges and seminaries are very liberal. And, you know, college has been the main vector of liberalizing young people theologically, culturally, as we know. But that's true of Christian colleges as well. And so in men, this is why I say that this is why I say the ability of church leadership to set these supermajority thresholds in the Methodist Church was so consequential because it may well be that the 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 majority of the the rank and file people in the pews are very conservative, but a lot of these leaders are very liberal, and they can set and rig the system, and and so they really had ensconced themselves in these institutions where they had sort of money and prestige and stuff to play with, and 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 that's basically the pattern. You should understand that probably. The institutional, denominational, especially the bureaucratic and the seminary components of these denominations are far more liberal than the average person who's a member of these denominations. Third lesson, liberals, again, cannot easily create new institutions. They depend on capturing old institutions. Again, this isn't a hard and fast rule, but I think it shows the liberals really took it on the chin on this one because unlike Machen, when they were kicked out, they were not able to rebuild. Fourth, uh, and this is a new point, but one that is highly, highly relevant, is that liberals are vulnerable when they stage walkouts. And by the way, they know this, which is one reason they so rarely do it. You can think about, for example, in the 1980s when Ronald Reagan fired all the air traffic controllers who went on an illegal strike. He broke the union by doing that. When you walk out you're essentially leaving yourself vulnerable to being, you know, replaced, given the boot, etc. So liberals frequently threaten to walk out, but you'll notice they rarely do it. But if they ever do, that is the moment when conservatives will strike because they've left themselves very vulnerable to doing that. And, you know, the fifth lesson is that conservatives can win if they're willing to engage in the same type of institutional total war that conservatives are. I didn't even go through all the tactics and things that happened. You know, the, uh, the, um, you know, the, the, the liberals were like doing all this like back move. Hey, we got to stick in our president before the election because a conservative might win. So when we got the votes, we have to do it. Hey, you know, when that, when that um, conservative guy got in, that, that Prius guy who seems to be the main instigator here, 
uh, he's like, hey, we're going to, um, you know, we're going to do this fact-finding mission. We're going after you. And when it found out that, that like a Christian college, uh, this Concordia Senior College in Fort Wayne, Indiana, was a big pipeline of students into Seminex, the, the, he had the, um, the, the LCMS shut the college down. He's like, we're not even going to let this college go. He's like, look, we're willing to shutter this thing in order to cut off Seminex uh, at the knees a little bit. So they were willing to do the sorts of things that liberals have historically been willing to do, but the conservatives are seldom willing to do and seldom even think about doing. But if you're willing to fight the same kind of battle that they're willing to fight, um, then that that's a good one. You know, maybe maybe a um, maybe maybe a, a sixth lesson here. I think we're up to six lessons. Is you know somebody you know one man can make a difference. And again, I want to say this was just a one man man band, but this Jacob Preyus guy seems to have kind of made it his mission. He's like, I'm going to root this stuff out of this denomination and, and can make a big a big difference. Seventh, and this is a new one, but um, You'll get it from the page, but one of the most important things to understand is that, in essence, liberals are duplicitous and they lie in the service of their objectives. Nothing is more important to understand that that people on the progressive factions of these denominational battles are just dishonest. And we saw this in this thing. All these professors, they would swear up and down that they subscribe to these Lutheran confessions, well, just like just like in the fundamentalist modern controversy within the uh, the Presbyterian Church. Oh yeah, I I believe in the Westminster Confession. I I believe in the Westminster Confession of Faith. And churches tend to be very high trust organizations that rely on things like honor. And honor is very important to a lot of conservatives. The idea that a conservative would state, "I oh yes, I believe this," when they really don't believe it, and they're kind of like, "Nah, I don't really believe that." I'm just going to say it. It kind of causes a lot of psychic distress for conservatives to do that. It doesn't cause liberals any psychic distress to do that. And so, you know, they'll just deny, oh, I'm not a liberal. I'm not, of course, I, I, I believe in the Word of God. They even talked about how to talk about the confessions and the Word of God and, and, and you know, how to refuse to answer what they called trick questions and things like that. And so um, one thing you just have to understand, if, if there are people who represent a progressive faction in your church, you just have to expect that they're going to be totally dishonest whenever it suits their their thing. And again, this idea that we have to assume, presume everyone is talking and acting in good faith until we have some sort of concrete evidence that they are not, that's a relic of a high-trust society that America used to be. That's not the case today. We don't live in that kind of society today. And I'm not necessarily saying that you should assume people are crooks and you know all that stuff. Don't assume the worst, but maybe you should have. Maybe they should have to earn every piece of trust you give them. Maybe no, these people are not entitled to any trust until such time as that they've demonstrated a track record that means I should trust them. You see constant, constant appeals by people who are you know in the progressive factions or being accused of being in the progressive factions to. Uh, to to extend the, the presumption of good faith. And that can be, that's weaponized against you. I mean, it's just weaponized against you. And you just have to be prepared for the fact that these people are going to be dishonest. And I think we see that because we often see, as in the case here, when the liberals get control or go have their own institution, like with this new thing, they immediately crank it over, you know, four or five notches further than they were before. They were disguising their power levels, so to speak, while these battles were going on. And then, you know, if maybe if they get out on top, things things change quickly. And so I think that's that's important. And the last thing I will say is, 
don't assume that this LCMS struggle is an exact template to apply to other denominations today. The legal structures of denominations are different. The battles are different today. The issues are different. Uh, but I do think it shows that, you know, resistance is possible. And rather than spending a lot of time talking about the people who lost, right, and, and uh, you know, and somebody was even talking to me, I was talking with, about somebody about Machen earlier this week. He's like, you know, there's almost like a certain lost causeism, you know, wrapped up in Machen. And I agree. I mean, it's like, think about, just think about, it. instead of saying, hey, think about Gresham Machen and let's study him. How about we study the people who actually won? Maybe we should just take a, a look at this LCMS. Maybe we should be studying the conservative resurgence. There are actually examples of conservatives who have won and have rolled back things. And if you are conservative, then maybe you ought to be looking at those and thinking about, man, we need to be armoring ourselves up and understanding what it actually takes uh, to win these sorts of battles. So again, I'll uh, I'll end right there. And again, I'll just put out a reminder, if you have not yet left a rating or review on Apple Podcast or wherever you consume this, uh, please do. Thank you so much for listening and more next week.